This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review The Silent Majority by Life, Sex, and Death. I do need to mention that there will be some swearing in this episode. And you're like, what is this guy doing? This is a band that clearly has the chops. It kind of comes off as this creepy kind of derelict. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manichi, and joining me once again, my trusty sidekick, my second amigo. We don't have a third at this point. Uh, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, if we were to get a third amigo, who would you suggest? Would you go with Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, or Martin Short? Ooh, definitely not Chevy Chase. He's just not funny anymore. I don't know what happened, but that guy is just not funny. Yeah, he got least. bitter. I've always been a big Martin Short fan, and he seems like he'd be a fun guy to hang out with. Um, I think Steve Martin's just too smart for us. It's probably true. I, I like the Steve Martin from Baby Mama, replaced the health food store magnet. <laughs> right, right. That's We'd the pro- Steve Martin I want. The bird watching movie. Oh, uh, the, the big year. Yeah, I just I watched that. I said the one from um, the big year would be way less fun. Yeah, I agree with you on that. So, Jay, we got a suggestion, and it sort of spurred a uh, uh, not a not a conversation. We didn't really talk about it, but we decided to, to delve into. I guess you would say the tail end of the hair glam movement that sort of crisscrossed over into the alternative metal movement of the 90s. Uh, We got a suggestion from Steve Helton, and he wanted us to check out Life, Sex, and Death and their album, The Silent Majority. Now, after this came up, you suggested an album, which we're going to get to next week. Um, No, uh, I'm not going to tip our hat to what it is, but it's it's in the same vein. Uh, You know, a band that was definitely... you know, of the hair, glam, rock, metal sound, but with a little bit of a different take on it. Each of these two bands. And I think they're both relevant to our discussion of 90s rock and alternative and indie and college and all those sorts of things. So I was slightly familiar with Life, Sex, and Death, but I believe you are more familiar with them, correct? I am. I could probably do the history of the band from memory. You know what, Jay? You're going to do a, it. No, no, no. I'll pipe in. But yeah, I'm a, okay. huge fan, a huge fan of the band. And I'm pretty sure that I only know of them prior to this because you uh, might have slipped me the CD at some point. Because I remember discussions about this band and I, I didn't quite get it back at the time. I didn't. I don't know if this was like in the early 2000s when you suggested i listen to this and i, I kind of went what the hell is this and um was a little confused so i guess we'll find out if my opinion changed but uh you mentioned the history of the band why don't we just do the history of the band history of the band so life sex and death formed in chicago illinois by chris Stanley Stan on vocals, Alex Kane on guitar and vocals, Dave Andre on bass, and Brian Michael Horak on drums, who was later replaced, uh, or uh, excuse me, Dave Andre was replaced by Bill E. Gar. This is back in 1990 
in Chicago. There was a bidding war, and they signed to Warner Brothers. And they only released one album. It was released in August of 1992 on Warner Brothers' subsidiary Reprise Records. It's called The Silent Majority, which I believe is a term that Richard Nixon used during the, his campaign in like 1968 about the traditional American values being the silent majority versus the hippies of, mm-hmm. the, uh, of the late 60s. I think that's correct. I might be getting that wrong, but I think it was a 68 campaign. Uh, so there were a couple lineup changes after that record, and they started working on a second follow-up record called Human Bomb, but they never actually finished it, and the band broke up in 1996, and since then, only a few random songs have appeared here and there on the web, as well as a live DVD. And that's it for the history of the band. Now, there's one thing I did want to mention. As far as this album, uh, it was recorded mostly live at Kane's Ballroom in Oklahoma, which was the site of one of the Sex Pistol stops on their first u.s tour in the 70s and was the reason why the band picked that location to record because the sex pistols had played there so that's it for the history of the band if you would like to suggest a band visit our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com for all the information to do so uh, jay we did get some facebook feedback and ironically enough it's from steve helton the man who suggested this album he said finally Great pick, an underrated album. So, Jay, do you have any other information regarding the history or anything about this band that you'd like to chime in with? Yeah, uh, so this band is fascinating. Um, Really, really, the definition of unique to me. Um, They started in the late 80s, like you mentioned, and there's a video of them on YouTube for a song called, called American... Shit, I don't know. I have to look it up. So there's a there's a video of them from the 80s on YouTube, and uh, they were 100 percent a glam metal band. Um, at some point between 1990 and when this record came out, um, Chris Stan, the singer who in the glam days was known as Chris Stan, but his father died apparently, and song on the album that deals with that and he went through some sort of breakdown slash depression slash um some kind of life event and he was an eccentric guy to start with from everything i've read but basically he turned into a functional derelict i guess you could say um some people claim that you know uh i guess the band put a press release at some point or the label did that said that he was a homeless guy that they had found. Um, he sort of came all across as a as a homeless person, but uh, he basically wore the same suit for four years, never bathed, um, wore these Coke bottle glasses, and spoke with a slur and sort of a crooked mouth, and it was really an atypical character for a rock band. Um, the during the time the band sort of underwent a transformation either on purpose or as a result of this and the result was taking that history and background and and basically 
glam metal and writing pop metal hooks and turned it in and twisted it and turned it into what the Asylum George is, which we can get into the details of that. But one of the fascinating things I think about the band is that if you start looking, doing any research on them, one of the big par- uh, polarizing aspects of them was the image part, mm-hmm. in particular because people perceived him as, or I guess I guess some people took a major offense to the fact that he claimed, or somebody claimed that he was homeless, or that he was trying to portray a homeless person, and then and that turned into a whole debate about whether or not he was really homeless, or wasn't homeless, or if it was an act, or wasn't an act, uh, um, which was always funny to me, because um, to me, it was sort of irrelevant. Um, I saw, I found out about them uh, by seeing them live, had never heard of them in my life. They opened for lynch mob yeah that's supposedly like kind of did a lot of damage for their tour for their career <laughs> opening for lynch mob when I read. yeah yeah i mean i i think that you know this is 1992 i think right when the album came out yep that i that i saw them I had no idea what this band was about um and so i'll just i i, I I'll walk you through what, what the live experience was quickly. Basically, we're sitting there waiting for the show to start. You know, it's probably half full. Uh, Cleveland, Cleveland Agora, I believe it was at. Probably half half full theater. And all of a sudden, we start noticing there's this like guy who looks like he's homeless or like disheveled, basically wandering around um, by himself, like up and down the steps and talking to, well, like kind of wandering around by security and like okay, well, what's, what's this guy doing? Next thing we know, this guy has a ukulele in his hand. Like the house is still on. He's wandering around the crowd. He climbs up on stage, and everybody's like, "What the f is going on?" Like there's a homeless dude that just climbed up on stage. Like <laughs> I've never seen anything like this before in my life. You know, the house lights are still on. He starts playing track number one on the album, "Blue Velvet Moon." And we're all like, oh my God, is this, I mean, legitimately did not think it was part of the show. Like this was some guy who wandered in off the street and just wandered off on stage and started, started singing.
so the the show basically evolves from there. The song Blue Velvet Moon. The way they do it on the album is exactly the way it was live. It's sort of you know he's uh, playing the ukulele song. It sort of evolves into this double kick drum metal mm-hmm. <laughs> metal salute to Cheap Trick, <laughs> almost uh, album kick. And uh, from there on out, I mean, I was just. I had never seen anything like this band. I mean, they were insane. Every aspect of, of from performance to what they sounded like to, you know, the stage stuff to the the songs, the lyrical content, it was just like, I was just blown away. So, and I remember, I, mean, I could tell you every song they played, and I had never heard any of these songs. And by the time I walked out, I knew every one of the songs. And uh, when I got the album, you know, remembered them from when they played them and it was it was probably one of the best live shows i've ever seen maybe maybe the best live show i've ever seen it was just incredible performance um so to end the the history part they they tore around for that album it does nothing Um, we can talk about as we review the album why maybe that was but it basically you know sold nothing despite you know the huge bidding war for them um, the drummer quits. They tour for another year with another drummer. Um, then Alex Kane quits, who was one of the main uh, songwriters in the band. And eventually the bass player quits. He, uh, Stanley, continues on, finds a bunch of new guys. And I think a lot of the YouTube videos you mentioned that popped up are him uh, basically rehearsing with those guys and, re- and trying to record that second album. Um, and since then, he has been... The rumor, the, the the strongest rumor that I can, I can say this is the story with this guy is that um, that makes sense for me is that his father was wealthy, very wealthy. I think he owns real estate or something in the Chicago area, and uh, essentially he inherited his father's wealth, and with the that kind of starts to explain some of the. Uh, how eccentric he is and how he's able to continue to basically take chances that most other people wouldn't be willing to take is because he can afford to take them (laughs) um and he can afford to pay you know to have other musicians play i mean it's kind of an interesting story of like somebody who has money and 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 actually is using it to be artistic Mm -hmm. um whether or not you think the band is good or not i mean they are undeniably original and he's basically making music on his own terms um, and not really answering to anybody. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a really fascinating story. He's basically disappeared. There's been some videos of him, I think in the two thousands, maybe 2007 or maybe 10, he popped up again on YouTube with a video of like basically same, you know, looks the same he's not wearing the same suit he changed his clothes in the house he like is in a house that looks nice but he still talks the same wears the same glasses and it looks just disheveled and some goofy video of him trying to like do an infomercial about selling caps like pop like pop bottle caps (laughs) and it's like fucking five minutes long and it's just him just just going on and on about caps I do need to mention that there will be some swearing in this episode. Yeah, you can't do this album without swearing. There's just swearing all over it. Yeah, um, earmuffs. So, 
he's a fascinating character. Uh, Alex Kane has gone on to form some other bands. He's in, uh, he has a band called Anti Product, and he also plays with Marky Ramone now. And the other two guys have, from all accounts, have completely disappeared the bass player and the drummer. So, um, just a really one of those bands, like in a cool way, even with the internet, you like you do research and you just. There's just enough out there to pique your interest, but you can't quite get the answer still. I mean, even to this day, you know, when Alex Kane does a lot of interviews still, he's still dodgy about the whole Stanley thing and, you know, was it an act or wasn't an act? Well, that seems like it's the biggest, like I, I went through the Amazon.com review for reviews for this album. There's like 25 of them. And there's just, it's like a debate within those reviews about, whether or not this was just all an act or whether he was legitimately, you know, homeless. And the funny part, I got to read you this one. This is so offensive. Quote, their lead singer was a genuine retard, mental defective to be PC, but boy, could he sing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it was unfortunate. It, It became such a huge distraction. And for me, I don't know. I think it was, you know, I took it as 100% genuine. I just, in the way that Tom Waits and, I mean, there's a lot of eccentric people. Um, oh, yeah. I was close yeah. enough to the guy that I know for a fact he smelled awful. <laughs> um, I saw him at Flashes in Lakewood on that tour a second time, and he goes through the crowd and basically start talking people and grabbing people. And I can tell you for, for a fact that there was no denying there. The guy was hundred percent not bathing and, and whatever. And to me, it's just it's kind of beside the point. It, um, it's so, I don't know. I in a weird way. I just, I didn't even care. I was so blown away musically what they were doing and lyrically what they were doing and the, and the things that they're putting together that it just wasn't a big deal for me. Um, I think in terms of marketing the band, Obviously, it was, and a lot of people got hung up on it. But I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts on the record because for me, it's all. I started, you know, I want to start this off by, you know, going back through um, my recollections of seeing them live because I can't separate when I listen to this record and not see in my mind that live show and experiencing it the first time that way. I'm fascinated to know, you know, somebody just listening to the record and maybe not. Um, seeing the visual in their head as they're as they're listening to it with their possible on it. So, well, you know, like I said, I, I listened to this back in the you know early two thousands, probably when you gave me the record, and I'm pretty sure I was confused by it. Listening to it now, mm-hmm. uh, and being able to sort of like place it in a time uh, of when it came out and and what was going on, I, I kind of look at it as if if Nirvana and the alternative doesn't happen, this could have been like the second Van Halen, this band, like Mm -hmm. they had the, the, the front man with the personality. They had the musical chops. There's even a song. um, It kind of has like a a Van Halen train. Is it, it has Mm -hmm. like this, it's like speed metal, black Oak, Arkansas. Like it's, it almost has like a, a Van Halen feel to the song. And, you know, they write really catchy pop hooks. They're a little more, you know, he's got some interesting lyrics uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, not just all being about 
partying and, and school and, or, you know, not school, but, uh, they have, instead of hot for teacher, you have schools for fools, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the catchiest, I mean, all, of all, if you want to lump this in with hair and glam metal, which I think it kind of does it a disservice, but it's gotta be one of the catchiest singles. love when they get right before the guitar so and that's basically the song is about why school is for fools and then <laughs> then they say it, it, um stanley says right before the solo what they teach you in school alex and he throws in this like ripping guitar solo and i'm thinking well obviously they taught him how to play guitar pretty well because they asked him <laughs> he asked him what he did in school and he learned how to play guitar yeah. that well so yeah. i mean maybe school yeah. isn't for fools uh, maybe yeah. he went to the school of rock i don't know but it's just there's a diversity from song to song. Some of it gets real heavy, uh, and some of it gets real, you know, like I mentioned, the double kick. There, you mentioned it's also in the in Blue Velvet Moon in the second half of that song. It, and, but then it, you get in like the slower, quieter stuff, which I mentioned the Van Halen like fam song. It sounds like this like demented folk song with a sing along, and it's just a short little acoustic thing. But it totally sounds like it could have been on you know, uh, fair warning or, you know, one of those, it has like that where, where David Lee Roth would at the beginning of, um, take your whiskey home with the acoustic guitar and, you know, playing an old blues song or even, they even did it on, um, the last record. There was yeah. a song like that, mm-hmm. but it has that, that's what it, it has that feel like it, this, this is a band that clearly has the chops. They clearly have the ability to write the songs and they have the they have an attitude and a and a vision to what they're doing. I just this just totally missed in terms of the timing. But there's so much fun on here. Like again, we're gonna there's a lot of swearing. Um, fucking shit ass track six, <laughs> which is clearly one of the best titles of any song ever. But it's so cool how that song evolves, where it's him sounding like a crazy homeless person, like wandering around saying okay. fucking shit ass over and over again and then it starts to build into a rhythm and then the band comes in behind that shit ass some fucking shit ass some fucking shit some fucking shit ass some fucking shit ass
But what's weird is that I think he says, I think the first line of the song is some fucking shit ass stole my mommy. Money. Is it money? Oh, stole my money. Okay. Yeah. But the, 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 ver- the verses of the song are real dark. Like he's obviously bitching and complaining. And then he goes into this chorus. It's like, it's like peace, what love, and understanding. Yeah. yeah. What would it take to make peace the word for today? It's the, yeah, it's just it's the, this dichotomy that is just absolutely, it starts off with this guy just groveling, basically, and then they build this song around the groveling, like the verse builds around that, and the drums block up with it, and all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, this is like the most angry song I've ever heard, and then all of a sudden it busts into this chorus just very fluidly that is so ridiculously optimistic and on the other end you know and it's like i'm you know I'm, I'm so angry at somebody and then all of a sudden you know basically what will it take to to make a piece of the word for, for today you know just this utopian sort of statement yeah. about you know i guess leave you know pettiness behind and it's just this crazy combination of of elements that come together and i think it symbolizes uh you know, two of the things I, uh, I just love about this band is one is the how uh, rhythmic the vocal can be at times. His delivery, mm-hmm. so there's like a, you know he uses cadence and just um, you know, locks up the drums on on several occasions where it's just this really um, propulsive, um, guttural kind of thing, but not not in a screamy way. It still has musicality to it, um, which is good. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's hooks, like amazing hooks and harmonies. And the thing I realized um, while we're on these two songs, Farm Song and, and Fucking Shit Ass, is that um, listening to it now, I realize Farm Song is really where they pull out the harmonies. That's the point when they say, you know, hey, by the way, we can do amazing, you know, three or four part harmonies. Right. And then on fucking shit ass, they pay it off with the chorus on that song where they they do the same three and four part harmonies. And it, it it's sort of like a great little compliment to each other where, you know, they kind of bundle all that stuff together. Um and I hadn't realized I hadn't noticed that before is where they really save their 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 uh, that sort of a part of the band for that part of the album and, and kind of package it together. But like I said, live show fucking shit ass they did it exactly like that starts wandering around the stage doing that intro and you're like what is this guy doing like what's going on and the drums come in and it like locks up with this ranting like oh this is a song like wow and totally and then when they get to that chorus live and they do those harmonies it just totally blows your mind Uh, another song I wanted to mention is uh, Jawal Asshole which I actually Googled that, and it's German. The word yeah. Jawal is German for it is willed. Uh, the one translation I saw, it was, it's essentially means like, yes, sir. Yes. So, yes, sir, asshole, is what they're saying. <laughs> uh, the, and besides that, it has this weird German word and then asshole in the, in the title of the song, and it pays it off in the chorus of the song. It has one of the darkest palm-muting riffs I have ever mm-hmm. heard like I don't know what he's tuned to he must be tuned down to C or something like that but it's yeah. like the riff is just going along and it kind of has like an Alice in Chains feel almost to it and then he mm-hmm. uh, is it Alex uh, Kane is that the name mm-hmm. of 
guitar player. Yeah. He starts doing that palm muting, and it's just like, ruh, 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 ruh. I mean, it sounds like death. I mean, it sounds, that yeah. that's heavier than death metal bands. so cool and and i think that's the thing that you're so kind of confused by what stanley or chris stan is doing that Mm -hmm. some of the guitar stuff sort of slips by you and you have to go back and listen to it two or three times because it's the guitar playing is amazing all over the record but you're so like what what is this leon redbone meets tom waits (laughs) delivery that's going on here yeah. Like it's the most with with a little bit of like Dick Valentine from Electric Six, like it is yeah. just it's so unusual and I and I, I appreciate that because if you're gonna do a, a bizarre vocal delivery, you know, put aside the theatrics, if you're gonna mm-hmm. do it, you better have the melodies to yeah. pull it off and not just be a one trick pony with I can sing out of the side of my mouth and yeah. you know make some weird noises. Like he he pays it off with, you know, song after song, and actually the it, the way that they end the album is real interesting. It's a piano ballad mm-hmm. called "Rise Above," and apparently that's the song that got them signed. Is that they went into the offices and he sat down at the piano and played that song, and yeah. they're like, "All right, you're signed," which is very like Meatloaf. Yeah, uh, how he got like he played in the offices of whatever record label. Uh, that Meatloaf yeah. signed to. At least exposes, that was in the Meatloaf movie. Exposes his. I mean, obviously he's a very confident piano player and musician. And, and I think through parts of the album, you're like not quite sure, you know, if what's going on in terms of that. And then that album happens, or that song happens, and it all kind of pieces it together. Like, oh wow, like, they know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> we kind of figured all this out. I must be the loneliest man alive. 
go back if you watch the the older like 1990 youtube clip you're like okay there's this song is awful in terms of you know it's incredibly cheesy but god it's hooky and uh something happened um between then that 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 stuff and this album one of the accounts i i read was that billy guard the bass player play when he was added to the band one of the things that makes him unique is he actually plays an eight string and a 12 string bass yeah. So on, you hear it on the song Tank, um, the intro of that, that bass tone, you're like, very unusual. Um, that's because it's an string bass. Um, and apparently when he was out of the band and then the combination of that and sort of the transformation of, of Chris Stan and the Stanley, it kind of became this new bizarro thing. And uh, a song like Rise Above kind of shows the, you know, there's, there's a, a competency there for sure and an understanding of you know pian- uh, piano playing composition songwriting um and and they do that song live he would wander out in the crowd and he would have a piano set up somewhere else on this in the auditorium and uh he would wander out in through the crowd and go f- to that piano and play that song it was uh it sounded exactly like it does on the album and it's it's that sort of compositional skill that allows you to write all these songs that they're each unique in their own way. They each have their own, you know, uh, he doesn't repeat a melody or, or a, or a phrasing or a cadence anywhere. Everything is, is specific to each song. Each one has its own, you know, lifespan. And, and it's really kind of, I think in a lot of ways they couldn't probably follow this up. I mean, this is kind of such a unique record that no matter what they did, unless they made, you know, use your illusion, <laughs> they weren't going <laughs> yeah. to do anything. Not that this is like the greatest record of all time, but it's just so unique. Like, yeah. I don't know how you, I'm sure that part of the problem with making the next record was just, you just couldn't figure out the songs. Like where are you, how are you topping? You know, you've got yeah. like the perfect pop metal song in schools for fools. Mm-hmm. And you got all these like great, you know, like speed metal combined with, you know, there's these weird like 
country rock or you know southern rock influences and yeah. it's just and uh you know obviously there's some when i was listening to like raise a little hell that's sort of me sounded like it could like especially the chorus sounded very like kiss to me which i'm sure yep. that kiss was a was a big influence mm-hmm. you know in terms of performance and whatnot so i mean it probably I didn't get it the first time because I just didn't understand what the hell they were doing. And now that I had some time, it's the years to reflect and, and get a little older. I can I can now put it in, in some perspective and be like, oh, now I get it. Now yeah. I get what the what's going on here. Yeah, I think if you if you didn't see the, if you've never seen the band and you're just going ba- solely by the music, it's going to take a little bit of folk to listen to it and sort of really absorb it. There's so much stuff going on here and so many twists and turns and. Uh, it's 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 different in so many in so many ways you know i think that's a great point about a second album would have been very difficult i think they would have been um because you know nirvana happened just about the same time so they would have been probably pressured to get rid of the the big hooks and i'm not sure the band is nearly interesting if you do that you know i think for me at least this mashing of punk and metal and in cookie pop metal and glam and this bizarre like homeless frank sinatra thing like all of that stuff coming together is it could have only happened in 1992 it couldn't yeah. have happened in 1994 it just wouldn't have been it, no label would have put it out. It just wasn't what you know. We, at that point, we know what was what was selling, right? I think in 1991 through 1993, it was sort of like, well, let's try this band, let's try this band. We're not quite sure. I mean, things are changing, but we don't know where it's going. But by '94, we knew <laughs> where things were going, and right, you know, there was enough elements of this band where it would have been like, nope, can't do Schools for Fools, nope, can't do Raise a Little Hell, can't do Wet Your Lips, can't do, you know, half the can't album. Can't do Big Black wrong. Bush. <laughs> I'm curious to know, like, okay, some of the songs were, I mean, they're borderline offensive. Yeah. Um, like Big Black Bush, and in particular that, and Wet Your Lips. Mm-hmm. What was your, how did you play the songs? How did you feel about them? How did they kind of go over with you at this point? I think he was doing their version of ACDC and, like, Big Balls and, and yeah. uh, you know, those sorts of th- songs. That I mean, there's a tradition of, you know, lewd lyrics and rock and roll i don't think that it does any out anything outside I, I think for 1992 it's shocking i think for hard rock it's par for the course but listening to them now you kind of like let I me mean, just read the title big black bush and you're just like <laughs> holy christ what you isn't it, quite as bad <laughs> but both of those songs now when i listen to them i'm like they take on a whole like dark, way darker tinge for me because I'm like really listening to the lyrics and kind of putting together the image of the band, particularly Stanley. And it, it kind of comes off as this creepy kind of derelict, like <laughs> dirty stalker kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's really pervy. <laughs> Whereas like another band singing those songs, it would just be like, hey, I'm trying to, you know, it's like poison. I'm just trying to have a party and have a good time. But like when he's singing it, it's kind of like, no, like he's I don't know up to no good and it just takes on this whole dark evil 
kind of tinge to it, even though the songs are super, you know, hooky and, and, and singable and everything. It's still like, there's just, just and, and some of the lyrics that he uses, and the way that he says things, you, you know, they kind of take on a different connotation, particularly now when I listen to it. Mm-hmm. Another song I went up was, uh, was Hey Buddy, which was one that stood out to me when I, now that I know a little bit more history of the band. Um, I kind of point to that as uh, I think it's basically saying it's it's telling the story of why Stanley is Stanley. <laughs> it's essentially him talking to God about his his father's death and mm-hmm. accepting an invitation to just check out, <laughs> um, which was interesting. I had never really had no idea what that song was about until I've sort of done some reading up on on the band at this point and now it sort of makes sense what he's talking about and it, and it led credence to a lot of the lyrics on this record being very autobiographical i mean i think a lot of bands um would sing about these some of the the more stereotypical kind of themes you know the, the you would think they were disingenuous disingenuous but i think these are like real from some standpoint or other which i think makes them even more interesting um, you know, I, I, I wrote down a, a couple of notes about a couple of these songs with some perspective that, um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. One would be on, uh, Joel Asshole song two. To me, it's probably the best Marilyn Manson song that was ever written. <laughs> That's and interesting. Schools for Fools, the song right after it is the best Poison song ever written. You know, yeah. it's just like, it shows complete opposite ends of the spectrum and the both directions that this band could have went um and can do absolutely competently and uh you know i, I don't know it's the kind of record that I, I like when those things happen and based on the sales not many other people do <laughs> no based on the on the yeah the notoriety that this album has absolutely because yeah. when i played the, the a couple songs in the car and for for Katie, we were driving somewhere, and Schools for Fools, like, it sounds so catchy. Like, mm-hmm. how could this not be a single? And she's like, that's where you, that's why you always say Schools for Fools. I'm like, yeah, I got it from that song. I didn't even know it. <laughs> Which really makes a teacher happy. What do you say, Schools yeah. for Fools? Yeah. I, I did want to say that I do like Tank just because he says repeatedly, you're a tank. Oh, Which yeah. just laughs, makes me laugh my ass off. Uh, so this isn't really uh, there's not much debate on this in terms of uh, whether it's a worthy album EP or single we're both I believe it an album I think that the only song that I kind of I don't love is Guatemala just it seems a little out of place yeah they did that one live too you know lyrically it's 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 interesting I guess just in terms of it kind of takes a very serious kind of turn there Especially yeah. it's it's right between Rain Little Hell and Big Black Bush. And basically yeah. the song and the song Guatemala, I mean he's just yeah, saying, you know, they kill the children in Guatemala City. <laughs> basically what they you know, the how they mistreat children in, in, in this country and it's like right between these two songs which are, you know, way more you know, they're upbeat, but they're definitely hooky and poppy. Yeah. So yeah, they played that song live. It, it it's you know, I I it's a puzzler. I'm not quite sure about that one. It was my it, it was my favorite then, and 
still is probably now. We mentioned some bands that, you know, an artist that we think that this band sort of sounds like, but really it's hard to pin them down from song to song. Like you said, there's, you know, a Marilyn Manson sounding, you know, the best song that Marilyn Manson ever wrote and the best song Poison ever wrote. And and yeah. I mentioned bands like Alice in Chains and Van Halen and Electric Six. Um, but really, the, I mean, they, they're they of a sound, but they're not of a particular genre. I mean, they're, obviously they're metal or or glam metal or, or not really a hair band, but you know. Yeah, I mean, this came out, I, I guess uh, one way to think about it is this came out, I was uh, I was actually just starting my first band. So I was like in uh, in high school, maybe a sophomore when this came out. And uh, one of my friends who, we didn't agree much on music. Um, I was more into, you know, it was kind of coming off the hair metal thing and, you know, trying to transition to something else. But for the most part, it was, you know, kind of hard rocky. He was totally into Nine Inch Nails ministry, you know, darker Indu- industrial kind of stuff. Industrial yeah. stuff. Uh, he loved the Sex Pistols. This was the, probably the only album that we both mutually liked. Interesting. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that 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 should say something. But you know, in the polarizing world of of high school musical tastes the uh the the hair metal fan and, and the um the goth fan goth industrial fan could get together on this album and both both appreciate it for completely different reasons but both still love it well i'm glad you found common ground on that <laughs> that's uh if you uh if you can find some i was gonna say some common ground but it doesn't make any sense if you'd like to leave us some positive feedback, I'll just jump into that. Head on over to iTunes. Uh, we uh, we gave praise to this record. You can give some praise to us for giving praise. How's that? And if you're if you're uh, a member of Life, Sex, and Death, you can uh, um, hit us up. Let us know what you're up to. And uh, <laughs> if you have any demos from that second album that didn't come out, send them on over. We'd be interested to hear them. And of course. I was surprised to see that it's actually available on Spotify. Yeah. I thought it would have been uh, erased from history. Nope, Jay, it still exists. Although I heard yeah. that original like vinyl copies of this album go for like hundreds of dollars on eBay. So, How much do uh, cassette copies go? Because I'm pretty sure I bought it on cassette initially. Jay, cassette copies go for thousands of dollars. <laughs> thousands of pennies. Yes. I, I, I know that uh, when I was listening to it... Um, Hey buddy ends track one or ends side one and train begins side two. And I, I just remember thinking that as I'm listening to it, I'm like, oh, this is start of side two. I'm like, how would I know that? And then I remembered like, oh my god, I had this cassette. And side one and side two means absolutely nothing to so many people. It's I know. Kind I know. of disturbing. It, it's just I don't think I'll ever be able to say that about another record that we are reviewing the show. No, probably not. Weird. All right, we're old, and we are done. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. (laughs) 
Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening. Oh,